Hey everybody, I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. We are the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are looking at Hellblazer 20 through 22. That's the last third... The of final triptych. The final triptych of the Fear Machine story arc. Alright, so where have we left off in this story arc? Well, the story arc began with uh, John on the run from the authorities because the demon Nurgle had killed his neighbors. Was yeah, wanted in Satanist slaying. Right, exactly. So he fell in with a bunch of hippies with a fleet of caravans. And right as things were going well with the hippies, they all got beaten by some cops who then kidnapped John's psychic friend, Mercury. Right, who is... A little girl, a preteen girl, yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood of age. Yeah, and they started using her to build a giant fear monster in the subconscious. Yeah, that's right. She was pulling fear out of the minds of phobic people and putting it all into a, into a sort of Ghostbusters-style containment cell, but it was growing into a fear monster. I think she called it the Terror Thing. Yes, the Terror Thing was her name for it. And we learned that the group who's doing this geotronics, they can use uh, psychics and an underground uh, Stonehenge that they built to blast fear from this terror thing into the ley line system and broadcast fear all over the, the aisles. Right, making use of the ley lines that exist all over the planet, carrying psychic energy in straight lines from place to place. So John is in London trying to track down Mercury. His sort of ex-hippie girlfriend... Marge hooked up with some hardcore pagans up in Scotland. Well, yeah, his one hippie ex hooked up with his other hippie ex, Zed. Right. Who we last saw in Glastonbury after John had... Okay, basically, she was supposed to get pregnant with the Messiah, but John got infected with Nurgle's demon blood and then slept with her, and she got tainted by demon blood, and that resulted in the angel that was supposed to impregnate her, killing all of the crazy Christian cult that raised her. Right, in an event that I refer to as the Zed Wedding. <laughs> All right. But yeah, okay, we're really going deep into the previously now. But basically, John was poking around London, and he found a couple of solid leads, and then this uh, broken man, who had been following him around, stuffed a piece of paper in his mouth and then jumped in front of the tracks, yelling, Jala Kuntilioken. Yeah. Right, and the piece of paper is in John's mouth, and when he pulled it out, it said, the G-O-A-G is coming. Right, tremble, the G-O-A-G is coming. Right, don't forget to tremble. And we don't know yet what G-O-A-G is, but we'll be finding out soon. Now that brings us to Hellblazer number 20, Betrayal, written by Jamie Delano, art by Mark Buckingham and Alfredo Alcala, and a cover by Dave McKeon. Yeah, and this cover seems to portray like a ventilation duct? I thought it was more of a padded cell. That was my other idea. There's kind of people projected on the far wall of the cell, which appears to be empty. Uh, and the G-O-A-G symbol is carved on the floor. It is a circle with a pair of arrows that are linked by a twirling line underneath. Sure, that's good enough. <laughs> Maybe we'll post one in the show notes, I don't know. The symbol is significant. Why yeah. is that? Well, we just found out there had recently been an assassination attempt on John's neighbor, a crusading reporter type named Simon Hughes. And as he saw the symbol drawn on the note that was stuffed in John's mouth, he said, this is the symbol on the ring of the guy who tried to kill me. Right. So clearly there's a conspiracy going on. We kind of already knew that. Yeah. The cops have been riling up all the left-wing groups in England. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, that brings us to Fulton, who was the sort of scientist in charge of Mercury. In the last issue, she talked him into taking her out basically. Yeah, and we find them waiting for a train together, but then Mercury asks to go to the loo, and once she does, Fulton knows she's just gone, man. Right, he basically uh, lets her go. I also like that she doesn't say the loo, actually. She calls it the lavy. Oh, that's true. <laughs> which, which was the new one on me. <laughs> but yeah, he knew in advance that this whole thing was just a ruse for her to affect her escape. And he didn't have the heart to stop it. Just about then, two cops show up and arrest Fulton. 
we cut to him sitting in a cell. He's thinking how he always knew Mercury wasn't interested in him. Yeah. He's sort of going over, you know, his attraction to her, and it's fairly creepy, but he's also, like, he, at least in his head, he thinks that he was interested in her for her psychic powers. Well, he says something about how he basked in her delicious innocence. Mm, true. There are parts of it that read pretty gross, although he does explicitly deny the idea that it's a sexual attraction. Yeah. It says here he'd known that she would be his nemesis. Nemesis here meaning more agent of destruction than archenemy. Yeah, and he feels bad for uh, sucking her into his world of corruption, which maybe is why he's sort of made peace with the idea that the conspiracy is going to kill him. Right. Soon there will be Webster and his rope. But then silence. Long, dark silence. And uh, as he's sitting in this jail cell, he scratches something into the wall, which is already covered with writing from other prisoners. Yeah, I can't really make out what it is. Yeah, I don't think that's I don't think it's that important. I think it was just something for him to do while he's sitting there thinking in the jail cell. Now we find John along with Simon Hughes and a retired policeman named Jeff Talbot walking to a bar. Each is still thinking about the broken man's dying word, Jalakuntiliokan. Dark side is. I'm sorry. In Mr. Miracle, he keeps having this like recurring thought or this recurring hallucination or whatever okay. possibly caused by the anti-life equation of dark side is okay i need to read this <laughs> yeah anyway this is the part that reminded me of the dark side is is that the first three panels say jollock and Tilioken, and then in the fifth panel then like the breaking of a dream i hear the word again howled with the raging breath of fear and madness on the train jollock and Tilioken. we're sort of repeating it over and over mm-hmm it's really stuck in John's head. Yes, and it's growing, assuming form in his imagination, also. At this point, Talbot busts into John's thoughts to ask for a drink order. Eh? Oh, gin. Large. So, we learn that Talbot basically has this Russian guy. The Russian came to him because Talbot had made an enemy of the Masons with his whistleblowing in the police. We learned that last issue. This guy is a paranormal scientist for the KGB. In fact, he's specifically the one that John met on the train a couple of issues ago. The guy he saved from the train when they were blasted by fear. Yes. So at this point, John narrates some further exposition. The KGB infiltrators in the Masons learned a sect within the Masons was researching psychic weaponry. But John wonders, where does the magic come in? They go to Talbot's place, and the Russian, Sergei, calls John a murderer and clocks him with a lamp. Yeah, now Constantine, uh, he had a feeling that it was going to turn out to be the same Russian. And he's like, he's saying stuff in untranslated Russian as he, as he whacks him. Yeah, untranslated Russian with one translated word in there, which is murder! Yeah. I guess we're given to understand that Constantine is knocked out at that point because we switch away to another scene. We have Webster talking to the director. This is the director of Geotronics, specifically, and we have actually not met him before. Okay, well that clears something up. Because whenever this character showed up, I was a little bit confused, as if I was supposed to know him. Yeah, there's kind of a big build-up for the director, and then he turns out to be just a guy, and not terribly important in the he's, scheme of the story, after all. It's just a fucking knob with a bad haircut. <laughs> he had kind of a bowl cut. So, he's talking to Webster. The Lodge has given the final orders to move. Yeah, he says something interesting here, which is, the weapon is not the fear machine. Mm -hmm. This thing, this weapon that we've built, is not the fear machine, just its inspiration. Right, so what we're starting to get the outlines of here, and this maybe doesn't become quite clear in this issue, but just to make it a little more concise, you know, we don't have to put the listener through... The entire slow process. I'm going to save of... you the suspense. <laughs> right. <laughs> the idea is that the terror thing that Mercury has seen is not itself Jalakantiliokan. Right. It's, it's sort of a bait that's supposed to draw in Jalakantiliokan. Right. It was cre actually created by Mercury when she was drawing the, the fear out of the scaredies' mm -hmm. minds and bringing it all to a single place. She created... The terror thing. Right. So the terror thing is not is not Webster's god, nor is the fear machine itself the actual purpose of the Masonic scheme here. Right. It's just bait 
to lure something bigger and older and more powerful out of hiding, basically. Webster kind of tells the director not to worry about it, and then he goes out to do some hanging. We each have our appointed tasks. You are the director, so direct. I am the hangman, so I will hang. Concise? Yeah, but he actually goes off to defy orders from the director. We learn here that his loyalty is not to the director, but to his god, the G-O-A-G, Jala Kintaliokan. Right, and he's thinking about the director and others like him. They're stupid and petty men who fear even the sham glories offered them. And we find out that Webster is the one who's the real priest of Jala Kintaliokan. Right, and he says a word here. I'm going to try to pronounce this Latin. He says, Magi Cesus Dominari? I guess I assumed it was Caiacus. Caiacus? Okay. This scientist comes in, and Webster orders him to leave. He kind of asks, hey, what's up with those standing stones, man? And Webster intimidates the crap out of him. You are a blind insect crawling on a ball of mud. You stand in the shadow of the universal force, and you cannot even feel it. Get out! And then Webster enters the underground stone circle and begins to pray. Yeah, and he shouts a big Jolicantilioken there. Not the biggest that it could be, but it's, you know, it's in a speech bubble. But it's like an epic-sized type. Yeah, that's a pretty effective reveal over this couple of pages as he walks away from the director. We see that he's not following his orders, and then he enters the circle and shouts, you know, the name of his true loyalty, Jolicantilioken. Right. Oh, incidentally, I did look up the translation of the Latin here. It stands for something along the lines of Blind Magi Dominate. All right. On the next page, Constantine has come around from where he was attacked at the lamp and tries to remind the Russian that he was the one who saved him from the train, actually. Yeah, now Sergei mentions that John was... There when Grigori dies at the stones, this is referring to the Russian agent he met at the Circle of Standing Stones when he was hanging out with the hippies, the stones got blasted by the fear machine and that guy died. Circumstantial, chum. Unhappy coincidence. Wrong place, wrong time. Story of my bloody life, really. Do you think I choose to get mixed up in all this crazy stuff? So, John and Sergei sort of reconcile, sort of become allies, Now, Hughes suggests that if they know all this about this big plot, they should tell somebody. But John says it's too big. There's nobody to tell. Throw up. They'll snuff you out like candles. Anyway, it's bigger than that. What could be bigger than high treason? All right, hands up. Who believes in magic? Do leave it out. It's been a long day. This ain't pantomime and you ain't Peter Pan. I'm an atheist. The supernatural's never been big in my life. I do, if magic is the control or understanding of energies outside our current sphere of comprehension. Sphere, Serge. Sphere. But apart from that, you're talking sense. You two will just have to keep open minds. So as John tries to convince them of magic, we pan out over the city for a page in a kind of awesome splash panel of London with this giant, scary smoke face rising up above it. Right. Some kind of demonic face looking over the city. When we get back into Talbot's apartment, they may not necessarily be sold on magic, but they're all basically allied to take down the Magi. I want the bastards who killed my wife, Talbot says. I want the world to know their names. I want peas. Peas? Peace. I want peace from fear. Fear is the whip that makes us slaves. Fear killed your wife. Fear hung you in a cupboard to die. Yeah, that's what it is. A bloody fear machine, says Constantine. Yeah, here they're kind of linking fear-mongering as a means of social control with the mystical fear machine itself. Kind of an interesting, subtle social commentary. Jesus, this is giving me a headache. Got any painkillers, Jeff? To the sobering moment here, Jeff says, No, the Mrs. Bloody took them all, didn't she? So with that, Constantine decides to nip out to the store to pick up some painkillers, and it turns out to be a good thing that he did. Dun, dun, dun! You know, it's funny to me when we were doing the voices in that scene that, like, Constantine is the only one who we do with an English accent. (laughs) (laughs) There's, like, all these other characters are English, too, but... (laughs) Except for, well, Sir, I did did a a Russian accent for Sir. Yeah, but Talbot and Hughes also. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they should get... But but I, I feel like, I don't know, Constantine just gets most of the... 
the British isms, you know, it's almost like he's written in a, in a phonetic accent almost, <laughs> yeah. uh, whereas, whereas other characters are allowed to just talk. He has a distinctive voice. Mm, okay. And, you know, I can't come up with other English accents to give to those other characters because I need to use at least three or four different ones for Constantine every episode. Right, yeah, that's important. Now, we cut to a guy that we've met before named Davis. This is basically the chief thug of the conspiracy. Yeah, he's sort of the dragon. Maybe we thought that Webster was the dragon, mm -hmm. but Webster turns out to be more of a, of a mastermind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Davis is much more of like a, like a foot soldier. He's like... I don't want to say the head of the bad cops, because he works for Beale, who's the real head of the bad cops. Yeah. But he's the, the field lieutenant of the bad cops. And we see Davis here driving with a big old smile on his face. He just loves being a jackbooted thug. <laughs> yeah, he just loves rounding up witnesses. Um, and we get a flashback to sort of when he's recruited into the conspiracy. Yeah. This is a meeting with Beale that occurred this morning. We learn that... Davis had been sexually exploiting illegal immigrants in exchange for his silence, and that was what Talbot blew the whistle on that basically got both of them kicked out of the police. Yeah, and now, like, all the cops are, are mad at him for blowing the whistle on that? Yeah. What a bunch of assholes. Yeah, seriously. Now, Beale says that they're taking control of the country. They've been directing violence against the liberal fringes of society. He lists peaceniks, hippie travelers, gays, druggies, football supporters, blacks. He says, we need them to be angry, but we need them to be disorganized. Tell me, Davis, are you familiar with the concept of death squads? Basically, they need people angry, but not particularly organized, so he's sending Davis out to capture the leaders of all these groups. Right, yeah, to keep them on their back foot. Right. There's another line here that I thought was interesting. There are times in the affairs of the world when men are given the chance to forge the future of new steel. So this just kind of underlines the different motivations that the different members of the conspiracy have. Mm -hmm. Now, Beale is clearly one who thinks that they're using this great outpouring of fear that they've been able to create mm -hmm. in order to forge a new totalitarian government, right. basically. Yeah, now, Jamie Delano would certainly not be the only British comics author of the late 80s, early 90s to think that totalitarianism was right around the corner. Do you think this scene is too cartoonishly blunt? I think, you know... I think the way that the art works with it, it's very effectively creepy. Okay. With him feeding, feeding, feeding fly flies to, to the spiders yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, there are things like when he points out that he was you know, uh, raping the undocumented yeah. immigrants and the guy's just like, what's your point, you know? That I guess they can read either way as either, like, effectively menacing or mustache-twirlingly super evil. But to me, they were effective. It's like, Davis's shittiness, for me, is on, like, a level of realism where you can hate him. You don't have to think of him as a, as a cartoon or a caricature. I guess I find Beale harder to believe than Davis... I mean, Davis is just a crap person, but, but listen to the things that Beale says. Davis says, you mean take control, sir, of the country? You catch on quickly. That's good. We need intelligent men. <laughs> and then he says, are you familiar with the concept of death squads? He's like, he's winking to the audience and saying, we're the fascists. <laughs> I, you know, I can see it your way when you read it like that. But I don't know. There's just something so like... I, I don't see it as, like, a wink. I just more see it as, like, sort of a... He's a banal, evil, you know, bureaucrat. Mm, okay, okay. You know, Constantine all the time is running into dudes who are just, like, so cheerfully shit <laughs> that it beggars belief. <laughs> so we catch up with Davis back in the present moment... He has been rounding up people, and he started with John's landlords at the uh, Hotel Oscar Wilde, Ken and Harold. We have met them before. They're, they're fun characters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we enjoyed them a lot. Next up is Talbot. And as he drives to Talbot's, he mentions that he knows the address. He's been sending letters there for months. This confirms that Davis has been sending the hate mail that drove Talbot's wife to suicide. Right as the action starts there, we cut to Webster picking up Fulton from jail. So where's the girl, Philip? What? The girl. Where is she? Did you kill her? Kill her? No. She's gone. She left me. I don't know where she is. 
Why, Philip? Why did you do it? You knew what would happen. You've thrown away your whole future for a childish lust. Not lust. Love. I love her. But you wouldn't understand that, would you, Webster? Why have we stopped here? Is this where you're going to do it? Yes. Come along. Fulton, rather calmly, gets out of the car and sits down under the railing of the bridge, allowing Webster to slip a noose over his neck. Now, we've seen this scene before. Mercury was having visions of it a couple of issues ago. Yeah, we actually first saw it in issue 16, which was part three of The Fear Machine. This is part seven. Well, are you going to jump, or shall I? And then he's already doing it, as he says, push. Then he kicks Fulton off the bridge, and we see from Fulton's perspective as his vision goes black. This is a little different than the way that Mercury foresaw it, because he looked very panicked and frantic in the last moments of his life in the original scene that she predicted, Mm -hmm. whereas here he's much more resigned. Yeah, I think that's true. So just as John is walking back to Talbot's with the aspirin, we see him watching from out of sight as Davis and his goons arrest Talbot, Hughes, and Sergey. Sometimes I have to admit my timing's immaculate. Can we just talk about these guys' vests for a minute? (laughs) I think there's some kind of armor, don't you? Yeah, I think they're supposed to be like armored vests, but they sort of just look like quilts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sort of look like quilty and comfortable and, you know, like... (laughs) Like an extra warm kind of turkey vest that they all wear. It's got to keep warm out there in the London fog. Yeah. When you're rounding up dissidents. That's a coat. Yeah, they're not wearing coats. They're wearing vests. Okay. You say so. John steps out and sort of gently reminds the goons of civil liberties. He brandishes a CID badge at them and hopes they won't recognize him without his hippie beard. Yeah, and they don't, but they just tell him to fuck off. Did he steal this badge in an issue? You know, I don't have any particular recollection of him stealing it. He was poking around in a police station a few issues back. I guess that's true. So they just ignore him, and he doesn't dare push harder. They pile their victims in the van and drive off. Just when you get a grip, it all turns to bleeding spaghetti. Yeah, he points out that he's lost his allies in one fell swoop, but says, at least I've got a phone number. That's right, Davis gave him the number for the home office before he left. And when you've got a number, you can usually get a name. First, though, I need to find out some stuff about Masons. And so he heads to the public library. A useful resource for people in all walks of life. He doesn't have Google, and if he did, he wouldn't know how to use it. That is absolutely true. We find Webster in a Goag-branded apron rounding up the scaredies, starting with young Matthew Riley, who is afraid of getting cancer from radiation. Yeah, and we have a very effective and scary few pages here as... He goes about executing Matthew and, you know, beginning the sacrifice that's going to bring forth his god. Right. We see him take a cord from a cauldron in the midst of the stone circle, wrap it around his hands. We see Matthew crying and a close-up on his hands, and then the deed is done. Yeah, and all the time it's narrating, you know, super scary-ass shit like, On this night the seed shall be watered. Right. (laughs) He uses Matthew's blood to scrawl G-O-A-G on one of the stones. Looks like he goes back outside to do that, actually. Yes, he goes back outside. And on on a stone out there, he scribbles G-O-A-G. And this moment is of such powerful psychic force that Mercury and Marge and Zed, who are in bed together and Constantine are all struck with the word Jalakantilioken all at once. Remember you mentioned before how you can have a really effective ending and then put a little bit of dialogue in the last panel that kind of wrecks the moment? Yeah, and that that happens here because after the three of them in unison say Jalakantilioken, we get narration from Constantine, Oh bloody Jesus, I think I'm going mad. And then below that, to be continued! Exclamation point. (laughs) Well, yeah, I should think so. (laughs) Nope, that's just where it ends. Can we talk about the art here? The top half of this page where we've got the 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 terror thing sort of roiling? Well, yeah, and it's surrounded by the uh, coils of the dragon that we will come to find out is Jellicantilioken. Spoiler warning. Motherfucking dragon. Motherfucking big-ass world dragon. Yeah, 
I have talked before about how the Terra thing's design is pretty cool and scary. Yes, it, it definitely is. And Jellicent Tilioken's design is so much more. It's less bizarre. It's mm, more it's like true. it's more like sort of regal and grand. You know, like yeah, a, it's iconic in a way, and, and that makes sense. Like it's a like, world, it's creating. a concept. Well, it, yeah, it's supposed to be a concept, and it's supposed to be a world creating god. Mm. You know, so anyway, that brings us to Hellblazer number one, number twenty one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you are right. Hellblazer number twenty one, the god of all gods. Fear Machine Part 8. Written by Jamie Delano. Art by Mark Buckingham and Alfredo Alcala. Cover by Dave McKeon. This one we have a female form with snakes writhing out in all directions from her head. And in the background, here's Constantine having a conversation with a skull. Yeah, sort of a personification of death. Mm-hmm. Sort of having a conversation with death, but not like a pretty brunette girl. Right, no. Just a skull. The director comes to Geotronics looking for Webster. And he finds that Webster has killed all the scaredies, mounting their severed heads on a five-pointed cross. Yeah, and he's got a handful of offal there. Yeah, Webster here is looking especially piggish and brandishing a fistful of entrails. The director conveys orders from the Masonic Grand Master to cease all operations, but Webster refuses. The rebirth of his god is at hand. Yes, indeed. In the meantime, since the last issue... John has left the library and recruited Chaz to drive him to Scotland. It is raining blood. That is true. It starts raining blood. John says that after this favor, they're probably even... Anyway, I don't suppose there will be much call for taxis from now on. How come? Because I think this is probably the end of the world as we know it. Shite. (laughs) I love Chaz. (laughs) And then a panel later, Chaz says, You sure about that, John? No more taxis at all? (laughs) <laughs> what about buses? <laughs> right. And we get the title, The God of All Gods. That's G-O-A-G. That's right. Now, flashback. Back in the library, John felt the awakening of Jala Kintelioken. This actually seems to be... No, it isn't. I thought it was for a second. It's just very similar. But it's not a cut and paste of the last panel from the last issue. Ah. Now, he just wanted at that moment, to be with the people that he loved, but he had sworn to unravel the conspiracy and find Mercury. So he went back to work. As John heads into a phone booth, he sees feral dogs gathering in the rain. That's kind of creepy. Yeah, now it turns out that John knows a parliamentary undersecretary who, well, it doesn't exactly owe him a favor, kind of owes him a favor, and he also kind of has blackmail material on him. So... You know, it's a bit of a mix. I knew him a good few years ago when he was in the diplomatic service. Silly Bleeder had given himself a bit of a fright, playing naughty voodoo games with a daughter of the Haitian envoy. He claimed she'd turned into a crocodile on the vinegar stroke. Or was it a dragon? I hypnotized him, got it all on tape somewhere. That's classic Constantine. Asked for mystical help, and instead hypnotized the person and taped a confession for blackmail later. Keeping it classy. Hello, Binky. Staged any good coups lately? John points out that... Bartholomew, this is Bartholomew Carter Brown. Have we said his name before? Well, he calls him Binky, and so do I. Oh, all right. (laughs) But, yeah. (laughs) John points out that Binky is wearing the Magi Caiacus ring and basically tries to blackmail him. Binky is closed-lipped. He's ruined anyway by the failed coup. We were so close, but we lost control. Now we must withdraw again and wait. Yeah, there's a little bit more exposition here that's kind of useful. The Magi Caiacus are a closed inner circle of Freemasonry. At a guess, they probably claim a tradition going back through Solomon to Atlantis. You're one of them. Now, I'm not interested in all the crazed architecture of Masonic myth. Let's just say from now that secret societies are the labyrinths built to contain the truths, an arcane ritual, the Menonics, to map them. What I'm after is this beast called truth. So I thought that was an interesting way of laying out the situation. Mm Mm-hmm. And... It's worth mentioning here, although it's almost entirely off-screen, we are getting the sense that there's a larger-scale military or political coup going on in London right now. Yes. At least we know this comes up at some point before too long, that Davis and his ilk are busy rounding up van loads of political dissidents. Yeah, and John mentions that they can hear rioting and sirens in the direction of Spitalfields. Now, John manages to scare Binky into talking by saying that he will tell the others that Binky is the one who told him about Jollikin Teleokin. 
and he reveals their plan to use Beale's men and backed by U.S. fundamentalist money and fear of the Russians to basically squeeze all the liberals. The U.S. was going to pull out of Europe and build Fortress Britain. Glasnost would be undermined, and war industries would thrive, new order would rule, with fear the engine that powered us. John is disappointed to learn that it meant nothing but politics to Bartholomew. He really wanted to know about the magical end of things. Bollocks, Binky. Megalomaniacal pipe dreams. That's just the fuel they use to prod fat jerks like you into action. Don't you know that political power gaming is just slavery to a system? Now, John asks about G-O-A-G. Binky recognizes the acronym, the God of All Gods, but he doesn't know much more than that. And he gets away from John by walking into Buckingham Palace. Hey, you can't go in... there. Binky wasn't joking. It went right to the top. Like I said, though, you can't isolate conspiracies. When it comes down to it, bloke might as well just head for the hills. Did Jamie Delano just imply that the Queen was in on the plot? Uh, yeah, clearly. Okay. Just checking. Oh, and it's not blind magi dominate. According to Binky, it's invisible magi dominate. My bad. <laughs> That's sort of like no seers. <laughs> what? <laughs> From uh, Resident Evil 4. Okay. The invisible monsters are called... Uh, uh, no vistadors. No vistadors, right. Which means like no seers. <laughs> which sounds like it you know, could mean blind people or invisible people. I think it probably says something about my level of education to listeners of this show, that I translated the Latin wrong, but immediately remember the name of a monster from Resident Evil 4. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you learned at the School of Hard Knocks. <laughs> and not much Latin. <laughs> so we find Mercury traveling north alone. At a truck stop, she orders spaghetti, calling back to John's mention of spaghetti in the last issue. Uh, mm. But the server is Medusa, and the spaghetti turns into snakes. Don't you hate that? Basically, Mercury is still stuck in what she calls the mind world. Mm -hmm. Ever since she's been exposed to the terror thing, she's been partially connected to it and can't seem to ground herself fully in the real world. Yeah. Yeah, it's a serious thing. Just at that moment, by total coincidence, John and Chaz walk into the truck stop. Yeah, another happy coincidence. John really has no place being an atheist. <laughs> with all these helpful coincidences falling in his lap. Not that he is one, but... Now, John and Mercury have an emotional reunion. They hug in a heart-shaped panel here. <laughs> yes, indeed. Meanwhile, Chaz mugs John a bit about hanging out with teenage runaways and wants money for gas. Yeah! Now, what's interesting to me, he uses the word jailbait mm -hmm. with a hyphen in the middle of it. <laughs> so, at this time, in the late 80s, that apparently was like a novel enough term... <laughs> but, you know, yeah, right. You still used a hyphen. Meanwhile, underneath Geotronics, we find Sergei Hughes, Talbot, Ken, and Harold sharing a cell with a noose looming overhead. Yeah. Harold and Ken think that they've been rounded up and are going to be executed for being gay, but Talbot protests that he's not gay. Hughes agrees there's more to it than being gay, and Sergei correctly identifies this as the fear machine. It is an engine of terror. This is the fear machine. Talbot comes to some rather distressing conclusions from their environment. There are more cells, meaning more prisoners coming, and no facilities, meaning they won't be staying long. Oh, yeah, and there are decapitated heads in the center of the room. Be also the a key clue. <laughs> those, those would be the scaredies. Right. Who have already been sacrificed by Webster. Now, the idea here is that he's going to continue sacrificing people and the fear leading up to their execution and leading up to the moment of death is going to sort of be the fuel that keeps the engine running. Right. And the engine, in turn, is what's going to summon Jollock and Tilioken out of his sleep. In the next cell over, they find the director. And from his ring, Hughes mistakenly identifies the director as his attacker, reaches through the bars, and tries to kill him. He's trying to kill him in retaliation for leaving him hanging in the cupboard. Uh, a couple right, of the assassination ago. attempt a couple of issues ago, which was actually Webster. Right. Talbot stops Hughes long enough so the director can answer some questions. We get some exposition here. The Lodge appointed him director of Geotronics, but it was Fulton who understood the science, and Webster who was really calling the shots, which we've kind of figured out by this point. 
He thought the plan was just to use the fear machine to stir up fear so they could seize control of the country, but Webster has gone seriously off book. He says, I will die to feed the god of all gods. I knew it. I knew it. They're going to kill us. You are correct, obviously. You are all going to die here. That's murder. <laughs> this panel is kind of oddly understated. I mean, we talked about Talbot's reaction a moment ago. Also, when he says they're all going to die, Ken says, No! But in a really little speech bubble, while just standing, looking straight at him. <laughs> no! <laughs> That's murder! <clears throat> I like this exchange, though. Hughes says it's barbaric, inhuman, draconian, and Webster replies, Draconian. Yes, Mr. Hughes, the very word. But as to why... Beginning now, at regular intervals, your deaths will provide the stimulus to stir the world into a new age of utter liberty. And Davis taunts Talbot that they're going to save him for last. You'll be last, Talbot. You'll even have time to write a letter to your wife. Davis what a cool said, dude. <laughs> yeah, he's just the worst. <laughs> Talbot recognizes the implication that Davis is the one who's been sending letters to his wife and says... I'll tell you this, I may be bound for hell, but you'll be coming with me, I promise you. He also says to Webster, Seems like two more vans are on their way, sir. Coloreds from Birmingham and the peace bitches from Greenham. The others have been recalled. So, like we said before, they're rounding up all sorts of political dissidents for use as sacrifices. Yeah, from that line it sounds like their, you know, their fascist forces have mostly been shut down at this point but they got enough prisoners for what they need to do. Right. I guess the Lodge got cold feet yeah. or something at the last moment and decided not to go through with the political coup. Right. Meanwhile, John finally arrives at Pagan Nation in Scotland. Yeah, and it seems Zed has no recollection of him. John has a talk with Errol where they agree that every time you get too happy, disaster strikes. Last night there was a storm, Errol says. Some guys went out to put a fire in the garden and ended up hanging upside down, dead in a tree. Why hasn't anybody got them down? Eddie says it's too dangerous to go near. He doused it, and the force twisted the rods and broke his arm. It scares me, John. This is heavy shit. Can we beat it? Too late now. I think it's more a case of joining it. John walks past the pooky tree, splashes water on his face. He tries to enter the mind world like Mercury does. And he finds himself... Underwater, above a vast map of Britain with the ley lines visible. This is a pretty cool visual. I know what it is, but I can't give it a name. I recognize it, remember it, but I don't know how to get it. My mind floods, immersed in a high, soaring recognition of the body of the earth, as if pinioned by a web. Ley lines, stone circle acupuncture, of course. Then he finds himself drawn to geotronics in astral form. He witnesses... Simon hanged and decapitated. This is deliberate. Primal symbols to summon primal gods. Yes, yes, I know it. Oh, I remember it with the depths of my soul. Humbaba, fortress of intestines, cousin of titans, father of the dragon whose mother is the earth. John finds himself face to face with the terror thing, and he is helpless under its spell, when suddenly Astral Mercury appears to rescue him. She pulls him toward a portal, and he is spit out, in front of Zed, Errol, and Marge in a green glowing ring of standing stones. But the terror thing follows, now looming over all of them in reality, with only Mercury standing against it. Stay! I know you. You are part of me. Do as I say. You cannot have him nor me, yet. Our time is still to come. We wait for Jalakantiliokan. And that brings us to Hellblazer issue number 22, The Fear Machine Part 9, Balance. Written by Jamie Delano with art by Mark Buckingham and Alfredo Alcala. And the cover this time is by Kent Williams. There are two snakes spiraling out from the body of Constantine. So we start with a memorable visual here, as John imagines a little Cthulhu just peeking out of an open wound. Yeah. And then it grows into a giant mess of snakes. Which he seems to be sort of drowning in or overwhelmed by. But then one snake in particular, the one tattooed on Zed's arm, reaches for him, and he wakes screaming, holding Zed's tattooed hand. Hello. It turns out she does remember him after all. Yeah, she calls him Master of Sauce and Sorcery, which I love. She explains, 
You don't have to feel guilty just because you used me and left me for dead in Glastonbury. It doesn't mean I don't still love- Shh! No sentiment. This is a different world now. I wasn't in control then. I let everyone use me. I always knew I was special, but I let the Resurrection Crusaders tell me how. They said I was the Mary, the Mother of God, but they didn't know what that meant, nor did I, then. Now I do. John says he wants her, but she says there's work to do. He doesn't think there's anything left to be done now. But she says, don't be so stupid and chicken shit. There's always a point. There's always a future as long as you can imagine it, and imagination is the influence of all creation. She says, you know as well as I do that this is the sort of movie that doesn't have an audience. Everyone gets a part, even you. John finally remembers Mercury and asks how she fared against the terror thing. She's chased it off. Yeah, that was pretty cool. An off-screen moment of awesome? Well, no, it was an, it was an on-panel moment of awesome at well, the end of the last issue. She was, she was standing against it at that time. Yeah. You didn't see it turn and run squeezing like a little girl. Well, she's a little girl and she won, so I guess I shouldn't use that metaphor. <laughs> yeah, you're being unfair to little girls. Yeah. John thinks, stupid chicken shit washed out old thrill junkie, eh? Why do I get the feeling I'm being goaded into action? She's right about magic, though. It is 99% a question of attitude. And somebody refers to her as Eerie? Irie? Uh, that's Errol. Yes. Did do you get what that meant? I believe he means Eerie, it's just not the way that I normally spell it. Oh, okay, like she's spooky. She's Eerie. She's kind of spooky. He also says that she's the bollocks, which is his... Uh... <laughs> right, he calls everything the bollocks. Yeah. And he reminds John again of what Marge has mentioned before, that this is a woman place. It was the women who chased off the terror thing last night. I crapped myself. She just told it to piss off. Back at Geotronics, Talbot and Sergei are the last prisoners left. Ken and Harold are gone, and there were others too. The Blacks and the Peaceniks. Yeah, they've killed off a lot of the supporting characters that the story arc so far has spent so much time building up, you know? Yeah, it's really true. Talbot here is dreaming of death. He thinks how he'll go gladly if he can just get his hands on Davis' throat before he goes. I wonder if that'll happen. <laughs> Davis takes Sergei away to be executed. Do not give up hope. Hope is the only defense against fear. That brings us back to Pagan Nation, where they're having a hippie war council. <laughs> Can there be such a thing as a hippie war council? They apparently have figured out what it is good for. <laughs> oh, no. No, <clears throat> this thing you have done. John explains that they're hanging people to stir up the G-O-A-G Jolikantelioken. Mercury reveals what we mentioned earlier, that the terror thing is not the G-O-A-G, just a monster she made from the Scarities. John says the god is an archetype of human consciousness, a remnant from when people were more creative and less rational. But Zed corrects him. The G-O-A-G is the Earth. The power of life flows through it, male and female. God is the harmonic force. Yeah, the ley lines, the positive and negative energy flows. No, Eddie, you're wrong. The ley lines are just an early attempt by a male priesthood to dominate the female principle and unbalance the nature of God. Of course. Everyone assumes the ley lines are beneficial just because they're old and esoteric. But they carry good energy. No, it's the dragon lines that are important. The feng shui. Yes, the oriental tradition of geomancy plots the Earth's energy in natural flowing patterns. It makes sense, man. Did you ever hear of a straight line in nature? So I kind of like that idea, that it turns out the ley lines with their very strict, straight mathematical formations are actually an artificial system put onto the Earth. Right, imposed on the Earth's natural flow of energy. To contain the natural flow of energy. The ley lines bound the dragons, that explains, and now Geotronics is freeing it. But they're only freeing half the dragon, the male half. These magi Kayakus are the guardians of a magical tradition of male supremacy handed down from the builders of the stone circles, the masons of Atlantis, probably. They're using blood and sacrifice and terror to feed the male principle and raise it in the universal mind, using the breaking of taboo to realize a force of primal creation. Now John says that if the magi hadn't gotten cold feet about the political half of their plan, then the good guys wouldn't stand a chance. But is that really right? They basically enacted the coup successfully off-panel. It's really Webster that was the wrench in their plans. Well, maybe he doesn't know that. In any case, he's figured out that by driving stakes through the standing stones, because it sounds like what they're going to do, right? Or, or into the circles of standing stones. Into the earth, I figured. Oh, okay. That 
maybe makes more sense. But in any case, that way they can cut off the terror thing from the ley lines. Right. Cut off the center from the ley network and the fear won't be able to broadcast anywhere. So he wants to go do that. And Eddie is getting together a group of eco-activists to go do that. John wants to go with, but Zed says she needs him here. Yeah, actually, first Marge says it, and And then then Zed repeats it, and the two of them are sort of clearly acting in unison here. Zed reminds him, anyway, you owe me. Elsewhere, we find Binky, Bartholomew, with a noose around his neck. He is facing justice before the Masons for losing control of Geotronics. Yeah, and they mentioned that his death is going to sever the last link that connects the Magi to the government. So I found that to be a bit overly convenient of a plot point. Okay. The conspiracy has basically cleaned itself up. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's convenient in that way that Webster's machine is powered by killing a lot of people? Well, no, I didn't mean it that way. I mean that they've spent, you know, eight issues here building up this big story of a military coup and a a great conspiracy Mm -hmm. through all levels of the government in Britain. And here they just kind of conveniently say, okay, that's it. With Binky dead, you know, there's no more link between the inner circle of the Lodge and the British government. Right. Yeah, well, the political military part of the story has always been in the background. So this is just one kind of final stroke to clean it up. Uh, I don't know if I would agree with that, that it's always been in the background. When we witnessed the police raid on the commune, the political part is very much at the forefront there. That's true. And that is essentially what triggered John's involvement in the story as well. Right. Anything else you want to talk about regarding the death of Binky? Oh, yeah. So they mentioned that they have government troops that have geotronics under siege, but they can't send new orders. They can't send them the order to raid because they executed Bartholomew, who was the last link to the plan. Couldn't they execute him tomorrow? (laughs) We are under siege. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, there's nothing left that the Magi can do. Conveniently, it's all up to John Constantine. Well, and his friends, I suppose. Then pray this madman does not succeed, else we will all be food for Jalak and Tulioken. Really, it's all up to Zed. Yeah, John's John's kind of a microscopic cog in her catastrophic plan. (laughs) Okay, so this brings us to, this is a very effective scene, Davis, who's getting tired of carting bodies around and being surrounded by the smells of blood and shit. Yeah, you talked about the banality of evil earlier and this is davis just tired and bored from a long day of mass murder right he refers to webster as death's fat spider silently demanding more meat on which to work his craft davis goes for the last prisoner talbot but as he opens the cell door he suddenly catches a glimpse of mercury's astral form and he's distracted as talbot surges forth from the cell bye bye So, yeah, Talbot is able to take his revenge on Davis, the man who drove his wife to suicide and who's been killing his friends all day. And it is a pretty, like, equal parts scary and satisfying scene, I think. Yeah, we'll come back to this scene in a moment. Talbot's revenge is kind of a nice moment of justice for all the victims, but a couple pages from now we see Webster looming over his shoulder, you know, grinning with glee as he watches him murder Davis. And that's a reminder that Talbot's revenge is not working to fix the situation. Violence is not the solution. It doesn't counter violence. It's sort of a nice little storytelling moment. It subverts the expectation that the heroes are going to find the bad guys and stop their plot through action. Right. The unseen loyalist troops also fail to do anything of note. Destructiveness contributes to the GOAG. It's not the solution to it. Only love can conquer hate. Yeah. What? I think it's a song. Well, it thematically resonates with what we're going to find out Zed's plan is in a minute here. So. It is a song. It's what's going on. The Marvin Gaye song. Oh, okay. (laughs) Anyway. We find John bidding goodbye to the rest of the hippies, including Myra. That's the girl that he spied on when she was bathing. And Joe and Sam. That's not exactly what happened. Oh, that's true. She surprised him. And then he was creepy about it. Right, and then she gave him magic mushrooms. Yeah, that's true, too. He tried to hypnotize her. Anyway, to Joe and Sam, he actually apologizes for Ken and Harold for getting them involved in this. And that's kind of a nice moment, since they were killed pointlessly and mercifully off-panel. 
Why'd it happen to them, John? They wouldn't have hurt a fly. Like I say, there's no natural justice. We're all innocent bystanders, sucked into this like grist to the mill of history. I liked uh, how he said that there's no natural justice. That reminded me of the exchange a couple of issues earlier. Yeah, between Hughes and Talbot. Right. When Talbot asks him, do you believe in justice? And Hughes responds, it's not a force of nature, it's something you have to fight for. Right. And now it seems to be raining lizards. It is raining salamanders. I think they're salamanders. You could say they're lizards. Is there a difference between a lizard and a salamander? Is a salamander not a type of lizard? Yes, all lizards are reptiles, though not all reptiles are lizards. Salamanders are amphibians. It's a completely different order. Well, fair enough. John follows Marge's trail up to a waterfall where he finds her bathing. She invites him in and he says, Nah, he said he'd get damp. They talk about the brief relationship that they had. Marge basically says that it felt so real to her at the time, but now it seems like a long time ago. They talk a bit about Marge's relationship with Zed, too. Marge says, you should get to know her. You're two of a kind. Yeah, and that also feels super real to Marge in a way that she remembers the Constantine thing feeling, but she's moved past it. Mm -hmm. And on page 227, he says, I want you, Marge. I want you now. He basically said the same thing to Zed. At the beginning of the issue. Yeah, well, I guess you can't accuse him of having a one-track mind. (laughs) She says she wants him too, but Zed says later. Now, we're inside Mercury's head here, and she's thinking about how she has to play her part, which is basically sort of to act as bait. For Jalak and Tilioken? Right. And because she's the only thing that can take control of the, the terror thing. Which is the original bait in the plan. Yeah, now she is astrally projecting into Geotronics. She watches as Webster completes the ritual. We get a flash of another scene as Eddie and his guys are hammering things into the ground and they see a horrible mouth tendril rise up in a stone circle. And then this is a really cool image. We see the terror thing burst forth, but then it and the entire building are in the mouth of something much bigger. Yeah, something much bigger and something much less weird-looking in its way. Yeah. Like, this is, you know, clearly monstrous, but it's just a dragon, you know? It's not, <laughs> it's not like, Bizarro Sephiroth. Yeah. For this abomination which she has germinated is just a tasty gobbit, mere bait for that leviathan of incomprehensible force that swims in blood beneath the earth, that being of almighty dread, Jalakantilioken. Come on, you two. It started. We haven't got long. While Mercury is astral projecting nearby, Zed gets her ritual started. Zed and Marge strip Constantine and tie him to a standing stone. John asks where Mercury is, and Zed replies, She's out of her body, calling the dragon. She's the maiden on the rock. And as they strip him, Zed also says to John, We all have to trust someone sometime, don't we? That's what you once told me. Now it's your turn. Do you remember... Constantine saying that line before? I don't. Neither do I. And I couldn't find it. What's clear here is that Zed's plan is much like John's plan to defeat the Resurrection Crusade in reverse. They're raising a counterforce here to stand against the male destructive force of Jalak and Tilioken. We'll have to break different kinds of taboos, she says. Taboos of love. You used my need against the Crusade in Glastonbury. Now you have to let yourself be used. Yeah, so by breaking taboos of love, I think she means that they're going to have a three-way. Apparently. And as naked Zed and Marge press against Constantine's body, Zed's lower half turns into a snake. Gross. Yeah, kind of mermaid-ish. I think it's really meant to be more of a dragon. Oh no, I'm saying, you're right, it is a dragon. But I didn't find it that gross, because it's just like, a mermaid is basically almost that. (laughs) You know? Well, mermaids don't have the forked tongue. Oh, that's true. Yeah, she does use her forked tongue on his ear. So it looks like Mercury is running from Jalakantilioken on the astral plane here. She's darting through the air at high speed, barely ahead of a massive red dragon. This is our first full look at Jalakantilioken, and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, this is good-looking art here. I especially like the panel where she uh, flies out from within its jaws like the Millennium Falcon. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty cool. We now find Zed lying on her back on the ground, pregnant. And Marge sort of acts as midwife as Zed gives birth to an egg. Yeah. Wait, don't just leave me. No time, you've done your part. Now it's time for femaleness. 
Yep, that's in there. Uh, <laughs> this is a comic book where a lady lays an egg and says, now it's time for femaleness. <laughs> it's not terribly subtle, but the build-up has worked pretty well here. I, I actually want to talk about like the themes of this story and the way it's structured in a minute. Yeah, I, well, I like their plan here, which is that they're going to give birth to a female dragon, the yin to Jolik and Tilioken's yang. Yeah, so Zed and Marge run toward Mercury as Jolik and Tilioken is coming towards them. John gets free and chases after them. It's my egg, too, and I want to see it hatch. The egg hatches into a blue dragon that spirals up to join Jolik and Tilioken. Love conquers death. Femaleness joins maleness. John says, the Masons never knew the half of it. These are the god of all gods. Yeah, and John is sort of stuck out here on a lower part of the rock, witnessing this moment of creation. Yeah, so Mercury, Zed, and Marge are up on the pinnacle of this rock. John is just below it. And he sort of gets washed away in the surging waters of creation. He's sort of shielded where they are not, because they're up on the top. Oh, really? I thought of them as being safe and him as being the one washed away, but... Interesting. It's pretty ambiguous for the rest of this issue what happened to those three. Yeah, but in the epilogue, we get a page of Constantine muttering, Ja, Ja, Jala Cantilioken. Man, we've said that a lot of times this episode. Probably the most out of any episode. <laughs> for sure. Jala Cantilioken count is... is off the hook. Pretty good. John is found in the water by a boat full of Scotsmen. His memory is fuzzy, but he remembers his name. John. John Constantine. They hand him a newspaper. He reads that the civil arrest has been quelled and that Bartholomew, Binky, was found hanged from Thames Bridge. There now, you see. Don't worry about a thing, laddie. Just take it easy and it'll all come back to you in a day or so. Now that's what I'm afraid of. Got any ciggies? And that brings us to the end. So that was a pretty satisfying ending to this story arc. There's one major complaint that I have, and I'm going to start with that. Man, I liked it when this book had a cast. Some amusing gay landlords, maybe a crusading reporter type, some cool ex-girlfriends with mystical powers, psychic girl, maybe a grizzled old cop. These are all cool characters that Constantine could hang out with on a regular basis. And they possibly have all been killed off at least a great number of them have and yeah i agree with you that's a bit of a bummer we were rejoicing that they're sort of finally building john a supporting cast and they just did away with it seems really, like chaz got away i guess they really went to work on the supporting cast and, and we are left basically as we found john essentially alone you know i guess we knew from the beginning that john throws his friends at his problems yeah, I hate to say that's what he did here, but he doesn't really ever at any point have a plan for how to stop the bad guys from carrying out a ton of murders. Yeah, yeah. It might seem like it's going to be that kind of story for a minute, but it never really is. You know, there's, there's no, no plausible there's... way that they can get to Geotronics to stop the mass murder. They have to create a counterforce to it. Right, yeah, there's there's no big rescue operation. Mm -hmm that goes down. Uh, and that's a bit of a bummer. But the idea of, of balance and the whole sort of symmetry of everything that, that comes out of it, I found all that like very satisfying. Right. And Angelica and Tilioken is not an evil god. It's a force, and it's a force that needs to be matched, to be put in a context, so to speak. But it underlies the earth. It can't be defeated. Right. Yeah. And it's all part of this balance between like war and peace Male and female, yin and yang. Yeah, now I really like the structural symmetry in this story and the way that it reinforces those themes. I mean, for one thing, we've got Zed using John much the way that he used her in Glastonbury, and that's called out explicitly. Right. For another, though, we've basically had this story since Mercury was kidnapped split into male and female halves. We've basically focused on the male side with John hanging out with other men in trench coats in the rain investigating stuff. Yeah, John... Talbot, Hughes, Sergey. Yeah, we're presented with the female side via Marge's letters, and we're kind of told what the answer is going to be over and over, but John mostly ignores it. Yeah, that's true. And there's also Mercury. She's a pretty important representative of the female half. Yeah, absolutely. So, how did you feel about the fact that like one of the female protagonists kind of uses seduction 
to get out of her situation, that being Mercury mm. with Fulton. And just in general, the sort of the female power is sort of embodied by sex. Did that seem problematic to you? I mean, not really. I think that we're not supposed to view sex as kind of a tawdry pandering to desires in this context. The female power isn't sex, it's creation, as opposed to destruction. And we certainly see the dark side of the male power, that is to say, Webster kills a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's that... kind of my read, at least in the context of this story. Yeah, and I, I think there is a very powerful juxtaposition that goes on between, like, the grimy bloodiness of what happens at Geotronics mm -hmm. with the sort of more peaceful, sexy, ritualized part that happens at the Pagan Nation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the uh, the almost mythic portrayal of Zed's plan as, you know, the tidal waves are washing up over them. In oh, this yeah. Beautiful, uh, beautiful, natural setting. Oh, yeah, it's definitely mythic. Yeah, we have this great moment of... Of the two gods meeting, which is just, like I said, immensely satisfying. And the part where the second dragon hatches and all that. Yeah, and that's very foreshadowed cool. very well as well by the GOAG symbol that we have seen. The two heads of the dragon spiraling upward. Definitely. Really cool. It's strange to look at the portrayal of Fulton. You had mentioned that when we saw his death the first time, he's panicked and fearful. When we see it actually happen, he's resigned. Like, there's something about the way that Mercury uses him, changes him, makes him come to terms with his fate. Well, she causes him to feel remorse, which is important. Mm -hmm. And also, I think just, like, knowing his fate ahead of time is a big factor in developing that peace of mind. Do you think that she warned him? I wasn't sure if that was something that we actually saw. Oh, yeah, she totally tells him. Okay. What's going to happen to him. And at first he's like... You know, he's totally fucked up by the news. Yeah. And he kind of slowly is like, realizes, like, okay, she's going to use me to escape and they're going to kill me for it. And I'm just going to let that happen. Um, we never found out what happened to Webster. There was actually no rescue operation. We didn't see Geotronics after the ritual was completed. Yeah, it's entirely possible that he survived the whole thing. It's... Also possible that he was devoured by Jala Cantiliocan when we saw the building in, in his jaws. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I guess it raises an interesting question of itself, because I think we see Jala Cantiliocan physically a few pages later when it's when it's coming to the, the rock where Zed is doing her ritual. Did a lot of people see a giant red dragon burst up in the middle of London? <laughs> you know, mass hysteria. I suppose they that's can explain valid. that away. So yeah, maybe we're meant to read that he was eaten by Jala Cantiliocan in that scene. That's fair. I also sort of fancied that maybe he killed himself as the final sacrifice. Mm, okay. You know, first he kills everybody else with Davis's help. Mm. Then he uses Talbot to kill off Davis in order to sacrifice him. Okay. Then he probably sacrifices Talbot, and maybe he finishes off by sacrificing himself. But yeah, that could not be. sure. That could be. The last issue is maybe a little rushed, but I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, it definitely plays out quickly, the ending of it. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of effective build-up and there are some effective reveals. Maybe, I don't want to complain about the pace, because we find stuff out just fast enough for it to be interesting, I guess, at the very end of the story. The big reveals are dropped pretty well. Well, and especially after we complained about the pace in the first three issues so much. Well, that, that is true. You know, they're such slow builds. Yeah, the storyline took a long time to get going with... Not a lot happening in the first two issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a satisfying progression from sort of just being able to figure out the big reveals to actually having them to seeing how they play out. Yeah, and a middle segment where there's a lot of intrigue and conspiracy and spy type stuff. <laughs> guys shoving clues into other guys' mouths. <laughs> so how does this arc compare for you to the other big Jamie Delano story arc that we've gotten so far, which is the Nurgle arc. You know, that's interesting. I, I think I would have to hold this one up a little higher. For one thing, the Nurgle arc played out over around 12 issues, 13, I think. Yeah, something like that. 
but with a lot of side stories thrown in there, a lot of John Constantine investigates. And some of those stories were pretty good, but they were kind of hit and miss. Some of them were not so good. This is a much more focused nine issues. Yeah, absolutely. As well, we had that digression into Swamp Thing in the middle of that story. At a pretty important moment, in fact. Yeah, and it plays in to the Nurgle storyline in a way. Because there's this whole idea that the savior child is going to be born, but like the savior of who? Mm-hmm. And, you know, will it be an agent of the green? But yeah, this is this is a much more focused storyline than that sort of like, you know, slow meandering build up to to Nurgle and then a sort of slow pulling away from Nurgle and, you know, looking at ramifications that we got. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I liked the issue where he defeated Nurgle with uh, Richie's help. Yeah. But particularly like the way that he deals with the Resurrection Crusaders and, and Zed's destiny struck me as it kind of felt like they were pulling something in from Swamp Thing that we kind of had to follow that story to know what it was. Yeah, definitely. Maybe more of uh, Constantine's origins as a Swamp Thing supporting character at play there. And the idea that his narrative just becomes subservient. Yeah. Yeah. So this felt much more self-contained and structurally complete to me. I do think that Jamie Delano, for all the complaints that we've had about his run, Mm -hmm. I do think he is a Better writer than Rick Veitch. Okay. (laughs) uh, Who was the writer of Swamp Thing at that time. So the idea that, you know, that the Constantine story becomes subservient to this bigger thing going on in Swamp Thing is... uh, Part of what bothers you about that is that you weren't that thrilled with the writing in Swamp Thing? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But I don't want to say that Jamie Delano has been a bad Constantine writer by any means. I think this story really delivered. Well, no, he has his moments. I think Antarctica was a story we were both really dissatisfied with. Yes. And obviously, like, we know that the Garth Ennis stuff is coming. Yeah. And is, like, so much better. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that he's imbued this book with its own identity. And I think the resolution of this story is a really good example of that. Because it's not, you know, a superhero book that happens to take place in a dark and mystical world. Like, the meaning and the philosophy of magic is something that plays a part in the story. Yeah, there's a lot of good, like, cosmological kind of world building Mm -hmm. going on here. I I think you have a good point there. Like, Jamie Delano definitely played a huge part in establishing what the feel of this book and this character was going to be. Yeah. Well, as that final page implies, John Constantine will return. But first... Next week, we're doing Cassidy Blood and Whiskey, my favorite of the Preacher spin-off specials so join us for that hey if you like our show why don't you check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com that's b-l-u-b-r-r-y we've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode you can get in touch with us vertiguys at gmail.com or at vertiguys on twitter that's right and i am at blankcast sean on twitter we also have a page facebook.com slash vertiguys we are on iTunes. If you get your word guys through iTunes, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating review subscription. Yep, that would be really helpful. Uh, but as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right, only one of us can do it. All right, you do it. <laughs>